G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. We're going to be talking with a focus on the disappearing Christians of the Middle East. But with all the controversy over ISIS brides being brought home to Australia, our thoughts might turn to what has happened to Christian communities ravaged by ISIS in the Middle East. Most Christians in nations like Syria and Iraq were under such brutal persecution that they were driven from their homelands and their churches destroyed. Their very existence was under threat and church leaders feared their extinction. Well, right now, the number of Christians living in Syria has reportedly declined from somewhere around one and a half million before 2011 to roughly just 300,000 today. And in in Iraq, the Assyrian population declined from 1.4 million to as few as just 100,000 today. Well, our conversation is around the disappearing Christians of the Middle East. And our special guest, Elizabeth Kendall, is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Elizabeth is a former principal researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. She's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. And thank you for having me, Neil. Well, Elizabeth, there's so many different spin-off type of topics that we could talk about, and perhaps we will. Uh, we've just been talking with Bill Muhlenberg around some issues around Dan Andrews and uh, his acknowledgement of the Prophet Muhammad and a certain favour towards the Islamic community in Victoria. But let's get a focus really towards the Middle East on this big, big issue that we have spoken about now, I think, numerous times over the years the crisis of Christians being displaced out of Middle Eastern nations, uh, not recovering post-ISIS and not returning to their homeland, not returning to their homes and to their churches. This is something that you've been monitoring. Uh, Yes, it's an absolute crisis and it's not talked about at all. I am often just astounded when I hear news from the Middle East, it doesn't even include the Christian population, as if they don't exist. And the, the, it's almost as if uh, it's, they're an embarrassment, they're an inconvenient uh, embarrassment that the West doesn't want to talk about because it would expose the West's uh, powerlessness, its uh, policy failures, And the fact that the legacy of much Western meddling will actually be the genocide of the Christian population in the Middle East, the the place where Christianity emerged and from where it spread. So it's a crisis. It's real. 
we're looking at genocide probably in our lifetime and it's an absolute uh, tragedy and a disgrace how much silence is around it. I know we've had previous conversations about the Assyrian people and genocide and this has been one of the passions that you've had now for many, many years and uh, the Assyrian community uh, traces its roots with their Christianity back to, I guess, first century. Uh, how do you describe? Right. How do you describe the, you know, the the homelands that we're talking about for Christians, and and what has happened with this displacement? Well, Christians who know their Bibles will know that the Assyrians appear in the Old Testament, uh, the Assyrian Empire under uh, their great kings and uh, Sennacherib and. Uh, Sennacherib in particular uh, brought the Assyrian army into Israel and then uh, into Judah at the time of Isaiah. So you can read about the Assyrians in, in Isaiah. Uh, you can read about them in uh, the book of Kings where, where it talks about the Assyrian invasion of, of Israel and then Judah. Uh, they, were, they were the superpower of the day, of, of Isaiah's day. So we're looking at about, you know, 700 BC and 735 BC. Uh, they were a huge empire going right around the Fertile Crescent. They were fearsome. They uh, would invade lands. They would take captives. They would repopulate the land with foreigners. And uh, they, were, they were a big power. Now, the, we also know from our Old Testament that God sent the prophet Jonah to Assyria, to its capital, which was Nineveh. And uh, Jonah didn't want to go because, you know, these were the horrible, horrible Assyrians. You know, they were, they were the enemy and he didn't want to go. But God sent him there anyway. He preached, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And they did. And the Assyrian people became followers of Yahweh and Jonah's tomb is still there in Nineveh, in the Nineveh plains of northern Iraq. We don't know if Jonah's actually buried there, but it's, it's there and it's guarded. Now, that was when the Assyrians started to have diplomatic relations with Israel, with, Jude, with Judah. And uh, they followed the scandal of Jesus of Nazareth. They heard all about it and they believed and they became followers of Jesus, yes, in the very first century of the Christian era. So they have been Christians for a long, long time. Would we say that those nations uh, or the land that the Assyrians occupied, uh, Syria and Iraq, would we have called those in earlier generations Christian nations? Um, well, certainly the Assyrians are a Christian nation. And they were spread across much of Iraq and much of northern Syria and into southern Turkey. Um, probably uh, for, for, well, for a long, long time in our lifetime anyway, there have been Muslim nations and the Assyrians <clears throat> and have become a, like the remnant of a remnant. They have faced numerous massacres. And, you know, some of them are, in my mind, especially tragic. So probably the biggest threat to their existence came back in the 14th century when Tamerlane, the, the, uh, 
the uh, you know the the Mongol Empire came through from the steeps, and Tamerlane basically annihilated Christianity all across Central Asia and into Iraq, and and that was devastating. But probably the one that really hurts me personally the most is knowing that during World War One, <clears throat> the Assyrian people, the Assyrian nation, supported the Allies. In, in its war against the Ottoman Empire. And they were told by the British, by the Allies, that in exchange for their support, they would, you know, when the land was all carved up at the end of the war, they would receive a nation. Uh, the Assyrian nation would be born. And, of course, it didn't happen. They were, uh, the British left the region in, in the 1930s and they left the Assyrians sitting there in the middle of Arabs, Kurds, and Turks that had already, you know, affected a massive genocide already in the Armenian genocide, and they were just slaughtered. They were slaughtered. So we are looking at a very small remnant that is just struggling to survive in their homeland, in the land where they are the indigenous people. They are being betrayed and abandoned by the West, they're co-religionists, and it's just, I don't think God doesn't see this, <laughs> you know. I mentioned in the introduction that the numbers of the Assyrian population, the decline from 1.4 million to as few as 100,000 today, when they were displaced, though, um, religious sites, churches, these have been destroyed as well, and it's as though, as you say, you know, when there's genocide or when there's a displaced people, they're trying to erase the, you know, any sort of sign of Christianity. Is, is that the way you mm. might look at it? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think we've all seen the images that were brought. Uh, the ISIS was very proud of its destruction of uh, Christian sites and even Assyrian sites. So, you know, the... the um, the, the really, really early pre-Christian pagan Assyrian temples that, and museum pieces. I think there was quite a lot made of, the, uh, of ISIS going into the museums in, in Mosul. Mosul is just like a, on the adjacent bank of the Tigris to where the capital city of Nineveh used to be in, in Sennacherib's day. And there are museums there that have incredible, you know, Assyrian artworks and statues dating back, you know, thousands of years, and they were smashed. One thing that is really interesting, though, is that uh, in the Reconstruction, as, as people who are rebuilding in Mosul have gone into some of the tunnelling that ISIS had done, they are actually finding uh, new archaeological sites, which is really amazing, really, really ancient, you know, 3,000-year-old Assyrian temples are being found, you know, in these caved-in tunnels that ISIS built. So, yeah. All right, let's not have just a focus on the persecution of Christian believers in these nations uh, coming from ISIS. A lot of people think ISIS is somehow rather uh, completely diminished, but uh, there's all sorts of threats that you've identified, including uh, threats that come from sanctions connected to the U.S. Uh, and from the Turkish people. Uh, what are the other big threats that are facing Christians in these Middle Eastern nations, and no doubt other nations too, around the Middle mm. Eastern area? 
Well, in, see, the Assyrians are spread over mainly northern Iraq now and Syria, all through Syria. They've been, because of Al-Qaeda um, Al in Iraq, pushed the, virtually all the Christians out of Baghdad. There are still Christians in Baghdad, but they're greatly reduced. The biggest threat to the Christians in Iraq, in northern Iraq, is land grabbing. So they would, ISIS drove them out of their homeland. So if you think of where Mosul is, and the Nineveh Plains is to the east of Mosul, they were driven out, completely ethnically cleansed, out of the Nineveh Plains and pushed into Iraqi Kurdistan and uh, where they took refuge in Erbil. Now, as they're trying to make their way back, they're finding they're up against a lot of opposition from Kurds and from Shabak tribes. Now, the Shabak, uh, some people say they're Kurds, some people say they're Arabs, but they're a separate, they seem to be a separate group, but they're Shiites. And so Baghdad and Tehran are both backing them, just like Iraqi Kurdistan is backing the Kurds to grab the Assyrian lands, to steal their lands and essentially disinherit them from their historic heartland and homeland. It, that land grabbing plus just systematic discrimination, marginalization and violent persecution is driving them out. So in 2016, uh, which was when my book was published, the, um, the, exp the number of Assyrians in northern Iraq was estimated to be about 200,000. So now, since the war has ended, that's halved. And it's because they've been pushed out by these other factors. In Syria, in the meantime, that's where they're under threat from the Turks, Turkish invasion, and from... Uh, which which will release ISIS back onto the stage, but also uh, horribly and terribly by um, uh, the US sanctions, the Caesar sanctions, which are based on a lie, on a fraudulent report that was produced by Qatar, an enemy of Damascus. And it's a, these are suffocating sanctions. They're, I describe it as an economic siege. So if you think of how a siege works, Everyone inside the city will starve to death because no food can get in and out. And the idea of a siege is that you, you make the community such a pressure cooker that they eventually turn on their leaders and hand their leaders over or have a coup or something. Well, that's how uh, the sanctions work. They're, they are starving the Syrian people, Syrians who live in government-held areas right, which is Damascus and Aleppo and the bulk of Western Syria. They are really, really suffering. And this is the safest, freest place for Christians to live. And um, it's just absolutely, I, I think it's bordering on, on criminal, what, what's happening. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Our conversation about the disappearing Christians of the Middle East. Our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Uh, you can read in depth uh, some of the things we're talking about today when you visit Elizabeth's website, elizabethkendall.com. 
Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own thoughts as our conversation continues to develop. Elizabeth, when we're talking Iraq and the Assyrian nations, as you've taken us beautifully back to some of the history, right back to even pre-Christ, but into first century and Christianity in this region, Christian nations you could characterize these as, talking about Iraq and Syria, there's another big threat that's coming to the Syrian nation today, and that is the possibility of a Turkish invasion. What are you monitoring here? Well, Turkey has been wanting to invade northern Syria for quite some time. It's already, it invaded some years ago, I think it was 2016, they invaded, or 2018, and seized control of Afrin, which is a city just north of Aleppo. And Aleppo is one of the main sort of cities in in Syria, along with Damascus, that had a really sizable Christian population, about 10% of the population of Aleppo historically has been Christian, uh, Assyrian, Armenian and Greek. And uh, when they, when the Turks invaded and seized control of Afrin, we had that horrible, horrible, uh, it, was, it was, I think it was about 100 years after the Armenian genocide, we had that same image of Turkish troops ethnically cleansing a city of its Armenian people. And the Armenians having to flee west into uh, Latakia, which is the Alawite heartland, uh, on the coast of on the Mediterranean coast, and uh, into the churches there where they were given refuge. So Turkey has long sought to capture uh, northern Syria. It would actually like to go further than that and like to capture much of northern Iraq as well. It has even recently bombed places across northern Iraq, uh, they already protect uh, Idlib province. So Idlib province is Syria's most far northwest province. It's virtually under the control of uh, al-Qaeda militants. So there was a split, you'll remember, and and ISIS broke away from al-Qaeda. Well, I, al-Qaeda has retained control of all of Idlib province. There are jihadists there everywhere. Some of them are ISIS too, and they live under the protection of Turkey. So there's almost no Christians left in Idlib province at all. And Turkey now wants to go right across the border. Uh, It's about 30 kilometers deep into Syria. It calls it a protection zone. Now, this will actually include some other really large cities like Kamishli, uh, Christian cities that, that have large Christian populations and even oil-rich areas. Um, so it's long wanted to do this. And there was a, a terrorist attack in Turkey not all that long ago, a few weeks ago, and Erdogan is using that now as his excuse even though no one has claimed responsibility for it and the Kurds deny having done it, he's using that as his excuse, saying he wants to go in and create security for Turkey. And the risk that he will move into the northern Aleppo governorate, into that area just north of Aleppo city, uh, is is real. Uh, that's uh, But even the bombing, he's been bombing northern Syria and uh, it's devastating. 
So are we seeing with that sort of invasion the possibility of, uh, you know, reviving uh, the Islamic terror threat uh, that actually targets uh, not just the West, but this ongoing battle between the Shias and the Sunnis within Islam. Is that the way you're seeing some of this potential for violence uh, evolving? Uh, definitely. Now, the Turks are violent enough uh, of, in their own right. They've been brutal to, uh, to Syrians and to the Assyrians that they have come across. They use uh, al-Qaeda jihadists as their proxies. They, f- they flow in over the border with them. I'm concerned that they might use the uh, al-Qaeda uh, jihadists who are based in Idlib. They might even use them as their proxies and have them expand out into the Aleppo, northern Aleppo governorate. In the, in the, e- in the east of Syria, um, it's highly unlikely, I believe, that Turkey will invade deep into eastern Syria, partly because there is, this is where it gets super murky, sorry about this, but there is an American presence there. There is an American presence protecting the oil fields in eastern Syria. There are ma- massive oil smuggling goes on there. Uh, Kurdish groups smuggle Syrian oil out. America smuggles Syrian oil out t- into its troops in Iraq. It's highly contentious because the Americans are there illegally. Uh, all the activities are Ill- illegal. But because there's Americans there, it means it's virtually impossible for the Syrian government, or even in this case for Turkey, to actually go into that area. Now, I, but I wouldn't be surprised if Turkey would be willing to just destabilise eastern Syria enough to let Islamic State wreak havoc on the Kurds, which would, which would include the, the Assyrians as well. They've actually attacked guard, and killed guards with their bombing. The Turks recently killed guards at the El Hol camp the great big camp that houses thousands and thousands of IS families, and some escaped. And uh, so yeah, there's been the main reason Iran and Russia and, and America will not give Turkey the green light to invade a foreign country. It's just amazing that we're even talking about it, that they will not give them a green light to invade is because of the threat of ISIS being basically let loose. The Kurds have been having to guard all these thousands and thousands of ISIS fighters. They can barely manage it. And if they have to fight the Turks, then ISIS will be on the loose. And that's a big threat for everybody. So you have the Assyrian peoples with that Christian foundation, but also the Kurds. Uh, They've got this Christian foundation too. So in uh, almost being like the meat in the sandwich between these sorts of uh, issues that are religiously motivated, as I think listeners can hear you say, between the Sunnis and the Shias, uh, somehow or other they've got to be able to defend their lives and their families uh, in amidst the potential uh, that there could be flashpoint at any particular uh, at any particular stage, and as you say, uh, Elizabeth, uh, somehow or other, the major superpowers uh, tend to try and hold off uh, these sorts of invasions. Uh, I mean, this sort of conversation it makes me think: um, Is this what the world is like if you don't have a Christian governance, uh, a Western? 
foundation that's based on those sorts of values that we appreciate uh, that we actually live under in Western nations, even though we've got some criti- uh, criticisms of those today. But this is what the world looks like when uh, when it battles uh, in, in religious wars, isn't it? Yes. Now, now the Kurds are Sunni Muslims, but there is a growing Christian movement amongst the Kurds because they're very secularized. In fact, a lot of there are a lot of Kurds who are are more Marxist, um, which is one of the reasons why they have so many women on the front line. Uh, they're quite a secular Marxist uh, groups amongst the Kurds. But um, the biggest problem that the Syrians face with the Kurds in Syria is Kurdish nationalism that uh, seeks to almost annihilate uh, the, the Christian history in, in Syria. So that, there's a bit of a problem there, but they, they do work together in the fight against ISIS. And one of the problems is, I think, that the, the West has actually uh, become such a... The West, in terms of its governments, has become such a lover of money, a worshipper of money, believing that money fixes everything, money will solve all our problems. If we can just have prosperity, we'll have human rights and freedom, and it's not true. And and, and their ignorance of Islam, they have unleashed a lot of this, and the Christians are the victims of it. Elizabeth, we've been laying a bit of a foundation, but I know that listeners will be very interested in how the effects happen really even on our doorstep. And I wonder if we can spend a few minutes talking about some of those issues because it seems to be that if the Middle East is some sort of an example that might prefigure our own fate in the decades to come if we ignore those Christian foundations, is that even a possibility? Are we overstepping the bounds of what is possible or likely if we discuss that possibility? Um. Yeah, on the blurb of my book, <clears throat> I make that exact point. I've said, um, I've said, uh, if the Christians are to survive as a people in their historic homeland, so in in Mesopotamia, then the Christians of Mesopotamia will need to get all the help they can get. And if Western civilization is to survive as a force in its historic heartland, and I'm specifically meaning Europe, then we had better start seeing hearing and believing the Christians of the Middle East for their plight prefigures our own. This is not, it's not so much the, the a likelihood in Australia because we're blessed by this great, what they used to call the tyranny of distance. It's sort of like the blessing of distance, really. Uh, most Muslims who migrate to Australia uh, are actually fleeing persecution or they are highly skilled, they're coming uh, to study, they're coming to work. It's much more difficult and much a much more different situation in Europe where actually Turkey is controlling this, what is essentially a mass migration of young Muslim men into Europe. Uh, literally, and, and if, if Europe... If Europe sort of irritates Turkey and they won't do it because they know what will happen. If Europe irritates Turkey, Turkey has told them they will open the floodgates even more. And there have been, oh, I think Germany has taken 1.3 young Muslim men. So these are Muslim 20-year-olds without their girlfriends, wives, families, 
they then apply to have family members brought. They haven't got women. And uh, and I don't know if you actually saw in um, in London, actually, they've had a massive influx recently of young Albanian Muslim men. And there's so many of them that the government are putting them up in all the beautiful hotels across London. And recently they came out to celebrate Albanian Independence Day and they completely paralysed the city of London. There were so many of them. So in Europe, the situation, I believe, is existential. It really, really is. Let's get a focus onto our own shores in Australia and how those sorts of lessons might be gleaned from what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, I'll just uh, rattle through. There's there's four things I can think of, and there might be some others, but uh, there's real emotion today, Elizabeth. And I'll just rattle through these four, but Umar Patek uh, in Indonesia, he's... Uh, one of the Bali bombers, he built the bomb that killed 202 people, including 88 Australians. That is a really raw point right now today here in Australia. I mentioned in the introduction uh, ISIS brides being brought back from uh, Syria uh, into Australia. Um, Then I mentioned too that uh, in an earlier conversation this morning, uh, we were talking about the Victorian Premier, Dan Andrews, who is reportedly elevating and promoting Islam now, uh, all the while uh, all doing all he can to cancel Christianity. And uh, the other issue, of course, that some listeners will be aware of is uh, new criminal code uh, laws in Indonesia that are banning sex outside of marriage. And that only applies uh, not only to Indonesians, but also to foreign visitors. So there's there's all sorts of effects on what is happening religiously by way of laws. Not sure where we want to start on this, but why don't we start with perhaps Umar Patek in Indonesia? That's the most current uh, issue that a lot of people will be very emotional about today. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I think the, the first and the last one there that both relate to Indonesia and they really go together and that that is the fact that there has been a real rise of Islamic conservatism, Islamic fundamentalism amongst the masses in Indonesia. Now, I, I wrote quite extensively on this in, in the um, at, during the last Indonesian elections. Uh, in order to be, get himself re-elected, uh, uh, President Jokowi, uh, uh, you know, brought in this uh, fundamentalist Muslim cleric as his vice president. And uh, he, he really, uh, to me, and I, I wrote on it at the time, that just indicated uh, the degree to which even Joko Widodo is having to play uh, a bit of a religion card and say, look, I, I'm really favourable to Islam, you know, uh, vote for me. <laughs> Even though the people know that he's a fairly secular sort of Muslim and yet he, he stayed silent while Ahok, the Christian governor of of Jakarta, was jailed for blasphemy. He has uh, just stayed out of it all and um, there's been a lot of pressure for quite a long time on the issue of the Bali bombers. So this, you know, this is very much, I think, you know, I, I don't know the degree to which Partek has been rehabilitated or de-radicalised or anything, but the fact of the matter is when you've killed, you know, more than 80 people, 
to get a shorter, a shortened sentence to that degree is really incredibly offensive uh, to so many people. Okay. Um, the whole—it sort of lines up with the whole criminal code thing. Uh, there's a real push at the, even at the grassroots level, to that makes Jocko Wadodo need to prove himself um, to, to be playing an Islamic card. And I don't think he's as powerful as he maybe we think the president is. You know, the parliament pushes these things through. He's playing a political game too. And uh, I remember those conversations that we had about appointing a 2IC who would be very favourable to Islam and the thoughts that there will be changes in Indonesia that will come. And I think this is over a number of years. And so you start to see these things come to light and you say, well, yes, there's the fruit of actually appointing that 2IC who was going to be, uh, you know, a general, a well-respected but Islamist, and uh, these things beginning to change. Some people might be thinking, is Dan Andrews doing something similar, Uh, just uh, sidling up to Islamists, uh, being their friends, offering to fund, uh, you know, a huge amount of money for an Islamophobia campaign to stamp out racism against Muslims in Victoria, Um, promising all sorts of things before the election and now delivering to a minority group which actually does, obviously, vote for Dan, uh, the Labor Party in Victoria. Is this a risky thing for a Premier in any state to sidle up so closely to an Islamic community? It's absolutely bewildering. You know, I just find it bewildering. So you've got one of the most openly pro-LGBTQ premiers like we've ever had or probably Australia's ever had uh, trying to get friendly with with the Muslim community. Um, the, the Muslim, you know, Dan Andrews, I'm sure it was aware of the controversy uh, that, about Qatar. I mean, no one, no one was interested in whether Qatar was going to ha- had religious freedom and you know that that you know for the for the hosting of the the soccer world cup no one was talking about oh we can't have the world cup there they don't have religious freedom and you can't you know qataris can't become christians they were very very worried about you know what about all the lgbt what about the fact there's no same sex marriage what about there's no trans and you know it's just bewil- it's bewildering to me so here is Dan, Daniel Andrews, who goes out and, and marches in the very front of Victoria's pride marches every year, going into a mosque that I'm sure would be would preach death, not just death to apostates but and death for blasphemy, but death to LGBTQ persons. I mean, how they can even stand in the same room together is bewildering to me. I think they're both parties are trying to see what they can get out of each other. And I wouldn't be surprised if both parties secretly despise each other. It's all a lot of political play. And I really, to be honest, I wonder how many Muslims would vote for Victorian uh, Labour uh, because simply because it's so overtly pro LB LGBTQ, and and I, you know, I think this, um, it's an interesting dimension, isn't it? Uh, yeah. This also plays federally, doesn't it? Uh, how uh, the ISIS brides, are, you know, uh, some obviously there's uh, there's different uh, motivations, no doubt that people can point to, but. Um, 
putting the welcome mat out to ISIS brides uh, coming back from being supporters of a war against Australians who fought there as well. Uh, this has rubbed people up the wrong way. Is there? How do you look at that uh, from a Christian viewpoint, Elizabeth? Yeah, this is a really, really difficult, situ- really difficult topic. So, you know, there are going to be some, you know, in this group, there are people who are sort of innocent about of, of how they came to be in that situation. I think you've got girls who are genuinely radicalised, who really believe that they were going to be great, you know, champions for Allah and bring about a caliphate and that they believe all this stuff and they're going to bring it all back with them. Then you've got uh, all those children and, you know, I think, boy, it's just awful. <laughs> I'd hate to be making these decisions. These children who had no say in, in where they were born. And one of the cases, of course, was this young boy. Uh, I think he was taken from Sydney, his family, uh, his father. I, th- I think an uncle was an ISIS recruiter. Uh, the family went over to Syria. His father fought with ISIS. Uh, his brother became an ISIS recruiter inside Syria. Um, they lived in the caliphate. He was 14 when they were taken over. And um, the photos of him as a you know 14-year-old, he's just like any other Aussie kid on a bicycle or, or on a Sydney, near Sydney Beach. And here he ends up stuck there and stuck in a, in a prison. And then when ISIS tries to break its prisoners out, he ends up dead. And it's, it's, it's tragic, there's no doubt, but it's the, the parents bear the ultimate responsibility. Uh, for all this. So it's really, really complicated. The people I feel, uh, I feel sorry for politicians who have to make these decisions, but the people I feel really sorry for are the people who have fled ISIS, uh, the people who have fled Islamic persecution, who's, uh, the, the Assyrians, for example. So a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, ISIS families are going, I think they're going into uh, Western Sydney, uh, and where where there's a lot of there are large Assyrian communities, and the Assyrians, uh, who I tell you what, if you meet Assyria, if you can have access to the Assyrian community, do so. They're probably some of the most uh, beautiful, gentle, gracious Christian people I have ever met in my life. Uh, they are they are terrified. They are horrified that the very people who have sold their people into slavery, who drove them out of their homes, ethnically cleansed them out of the Nineveh Plains, sold their their children into slavery, that they're being brought back into the country. Uh, They are are afraid. Uh, They feel betrayed. Um, They are deeply confused about all this. And I, I think I feel most sorry, I think, for the Assyrian... Uh, community in Australia that has to has to live with this decision. Without the history and without an appreciation of those religious foundations, you can't really understand the fear that might be experienced in Western Sydney. Uh, interesting too to note uh, that you know when you've got favour to refugees who come from this Islamic base, and even uh, favour to those who've got the association with ISIS over 
some that, and this controversy has been playing out for the last decade or so, uh, even over, uh, you know, whether those who are, uh, who are identify as Christian from those refugee communities would be given any level of uh, uh, priority to come into Australia. That's one of those debates that somehow or other you've got to engage in when, when that opportunity comes. Yeah, absolutely. I can I can remember how um, how difficult it was in around uh, 2016 for uh, political figures in Australia that wanted to prioritise Christians in the Middle East, in the middle of all this ISIS terror, with um, and they they realised that the Christians were the most vulnerable communities. Um, you know, they really had nowhere to go. They were they couldn't even go into the United Nations camps because it was too dangerous there for them. They would face all the discrimination and persecution inside the camps as they were facing outside the camps. So they basically fled to churches and monasteries in the area and as they were struck by ISIS, then they just had to flee to the next one. And, you know, they're such a vulnerable minority. They're disarmed. They are they are small in number, um, and they just don't seem to have the allies that that other groups have in in Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Iran. So they were incredibly vulnerable and facing elimination. And uh, quite a few politicians really tried to help. And as soon as they said we're going to pry, I can remember actually Tony Abbott used the term, he was aware of how difficult this was going to be. So he deliberately didn't use the term Christian and he said the persecuted religious minorities. And it took about 24 hours for the penny to drop, uh, you know, with those who, who then screamed, oh, that means Christians, we can't have that. That's the religious discrimination. But I can actually tell you that there were a couple of, um, of uh, Catholic, one Catholic and one Protestant MPs, quite senior MPs, one Liberal and one Labor, who went over to the Middle East and uh, they actually sought out Christians themselves. They went to the monasteries, they found them and they organised helping them to come to Australia, recognising the depth of their plight. But on a popular level and in the media, you just couldn't say it. Couldn't say it. We are taking calls. 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Abraham in Fairfield in Sydney. Hi, Abraham. Welcome. Hi, Neil. How are you? Very well. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, Neil and Elizabeth, I'm a proud Assyrian myself. <laughs> Sorry. <you>. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Uh, the things we the things we're saying here obviously strike a chord with you, Abraham. Very much so. Um, put it this way: all the things that Elizabeth has have said is true. It's a hundred percent true. Um, I just want to add one story which affected our family. There is that my ancestors, which were my grandparents had a large farm in, in, in Mosul itself. And we've got to be so grateful living in this wonderful country of Australia. Like we, they say that we have freedom of speech. We can say our thoughts. But over there, you, you cannot say anything against anyone, especially in the Saddam region. Like, for example, what actually happened at 
somebody asked my uncle, he was a taxi driver, and he asked, well, well what do you think of Saddam? And you've got to be careful what you say. And unfortunately, my uncle said the wrong thing. Next day, he got a knock on the door, and they just assassinated him straight away in front of his family. So you can understand how it touches the chord with myself and, and family and what so. But, you know, it's hard, it's difficult. And what Elizabeth said about being humble and, and stuff like that, when you do speak with an Assyrian family or sit down with them, that's all you get. You get sorrow from them. You look in their eyes and you can feel, feel their frustration in their hearts, just like I am now speaking. Abraham, uh, let's get a, a thought or two here. Elizabeth, what are your thoughts for Abraham? Oh, yes, and, and, and you see the sadness. You see the sadness. It, it, you, there's not, it's not even, it's beyond, you know, the fear, fear of um, Islamists, fear of what's happening. It's the sadness that thousands of years of Assyrian heritage in their homeland where they are the indigenous people, uh, is all just, it's all just uh, at risk now. But I keep, I keep clinging, and I'm sure you do too, Abraham, I'm sure you do, about that beautiful verse, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 19, where there's a prophecy concerning Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, and God says that God says, "Blessed be each." He said this. He says, "The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance.'" That's Isaiah 19, verse 25. And you know, in the day when this was written by Isaiah, Israel was this little vulnerable country in the middle of these two superpowers. Uh, Assyria, the, the strong superpower, and Egypt, the rising power. Today, when we look at it, we have a Muslim country, Egypt, a Christian people, Assyria, and a Jewish country, Israel, and the promise still holds. And what I really love about the promise to Assyria there is that it's the work of my hands. Politicians are not going to achieve this. Politicians will not give the Assyrians their homeland. They're hopeless, the politicians. And we do not put our trust in princes. It's hopeless. God will do it. God has promised it. And Assyria will be the work of his hands. And this is what the church must pray for. The, the promise is there. We do not sit back and expect governments or the United Nations, or heaven forbid, to do it. Assyria will be the work of God's hands. He will do it, and we must pray for it. And until it happens, we must help the Assyrians survive. Abraham in Fairfield in Sydney, thank you so much for uh, making your contribution to our conversation today. Uh, time has run out. Uh, the encouragement, of course, is for listeners to these sorts of uh, issues that we're raising today, to be prayerful about them. And when it comes to things that are happening on the other side of the world, sometimes we're less inclined or more general in our prayers. But you can certainly get some more insight, some more detail and some more depth when you visit Elizabeth's website, elizabethkendall.com. You can sign up there for the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. 
And uh, but when we're playing with fire, uh, when we're dealing with all sorts of religious turmoil and the flashpoints that can so easily overtake uh, different nations, uh, these sorts of things demand uh, for us to be prayerful about what's happening there and as we've drawn attention to, to what's happening here. Elizabeth Kendall is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Her website, elizabethkendall.com. And Elizabeth, uh, I know that you're also reaching out to a younger generation too. You've got some bite-sized bits uh, on Instagram. Uh, any other ways that uh, that people can connect with you? Uh, yeah, the Instagram's a new thing. So that's Religious Liberty Prayer on Instagram. And the Religious Liberty Prayer Bullet is something I feel so deeply uh, and strongly about. I just long to see churches uh, praying for the persecuted every week, just as like a natural part of everybody's prayer life. Not, not a special thing that you do once a year or anything, but all the time. It should be part of our prayer life to be praying for the persecuted and pr- end up holding our persecuted brothers and sisters on the front line of the spiritual battle. And just before I let you go, just to quickly mention uh, those books, you made a reference to your books through our conversation. One of those, uh, the most recent one, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. And uh, the earlier one called Turn Back the Battle, Isaiah Speaks to Christians Today, and you'll be able to get a hold of those books. And I'll point you to that website once again, elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your heart with us once again today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.